We know that you can't have a healthy pregnancy if you don't have a healthy family life or have access to the things that you need to be able to have stability in your family. And so our program is intentional about targeting not just directly related to pregnancy, but also ensuring that our clients have access to the resources that will allow them to have family stability. We are the National Institute for Children's Health Quality, an equity-focused organization boldly leading improvements in maternal and child health by addressing inequities and other complex issues facing families. My name is Jay Weisgerber. My pronouns are they, them. And my name is Dominique Davis. My pronouns are she, her. We're part of NICHQ's communication team, and we want to welcome you to Before Birth and Beyond, a space we're creating to focus on pressing issues in maternal and child health through an equity lens of shared learning, action, and impact. Join us as we explore NICHQ's network of experts and innovative project work at the intersection of quality improvement and health equity. Our goal is to equip public health professionals and healthcare providers alike with new tools, resources, and connections to improve how we serve mothers and birthing people, children, and their families. Hello, and welcome back to Nature Before Birth and Beyond. We're kicking off our new season with the celebration of Black History Month and the legacy and contributions of Black health practitioners to the maternal and child health field. Mama Toto Village is a DC-based organization devoted to serving Black women through the creation of career pathways in maternal health and providing accessible perinatal support services that equips families with the resources to birth and parent on their own terms. Today, I'm joined by Brianna Green, JD, Director of Operations at Mama Toto Village. They're celebrating 10 years of service, so we want to reflect a little bit about how the organization was started and the journey to this space now. Brianna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Can you give us a little bit of background on Mama Toto Village? I know 10 years, that's a wonderful journey, and I'm sure there's been a lot that's happened along the way. But how did you all get started and what led you to 10 years of incredible service? Yeah, it's been a, a real journey over this past 10 years. I've been fortunate to be along the ride for nine of the 10. It really comes from the vision of our co-founders, Cassetta Pringle and Oz Nadari. They were working as doulas in the community and they realized that the training for doulas was really not sufficient for the needs of the community that they were serving. And so they thought that they should train Black women to work in the space to be able to provide for the needs that were specific to Black women who were birthing in the community and Black birthing people. And so that's how we started. We went from a small training room in the basement of a building to a three-bedroom house where we worked for several years and did all of our work from there. And then now we've moved to a almost 5,000 square foot facility that we were able to move into in mid-2022. And our service delivery has just evolved over time from training to direct service to being able to have a full lactation program. So much that has really evolved over the past 10 years. It's been amazing to watch. Congratulations. Congratulations on the new space. You started mentioning some of the services you provide and you offer a variety of the services, including pregnancy and postpartum, breastfeeding, and even labor. So who are these services available to and how can mothers and birthing people access these services? Sure. So we have a primary program for our direct service, which is called Mother's Rising Program. And that program encompasses all the things you mentioned, prenatal education, advocacy with providers, health and wellness education and support, lactation support, labor support. And those services are offered to our clients who are Medicaid eligible. We're currently connected with all five MCOs in the district. And so anyone who has Medicaid in D.C. is able to get their services directly through their Medicaid provider with us. We also do have availability for private clients that want to come and see us as well. 
So we try to balance and create spaces for a variety of people to come to us. But the majority of our clients come through our Mother's Rising program with their MCOs. So nice and accessible to to mothers and birthing people who need it. What are some of the ways that Mama Toto Village supports families through the reproductive and parenting experience? So we try to support families in a variety of ways. Our goal is to ultimately provide support for family stability overall. So we know that you can't have a healthy pregnancy if you don't have a healthy family life or have access to the things that you need to be able to have stability in your family. And so our program is intentional about targeting not just directly related to pregnancy, but also ensuring that our clients have access to the resources that will allow them to have family stability, whether that's navigating resources that currently exist in the district or connecting them to others that they may not know exist as well as taking that approach from a three-generation approach. So we don't just address the family, the birthing person, or the child that's coming, but also we are looking to ensure that the entire family, so that's the aunties, the grandmothers, those who are informing the parenting of that birthing person, are also supported, educated, and informed so that they can be the best support they can be to that family. A collaborative team of people who are sharing the load of education, of advocacy, of connecting to social resources, providing education around nutrition, lactation, emotional wellness, all the things that are needed to address the whole person and not just the pregnancy itself. And it really speaks to the name, right? The village that you're addressing and really providing community even support for. Next question for you, in addition to improving maternal and child health outcomes, your mission also includes training new MCH professionals. I think that's really cool and unique. Why do you think it's important to help create more pathways into this field? It's really important to have representation in every field in which we are navigating. And so it really means a lot when there is someone who is knowledgeable about, you know, whatever it is that you're navigating, whether it be pregnancy in this instance or anything else. And then that person also has a shared experience or shared understanding of your culture that allows you to feel even more supported. And so we want to diversify this space to ensure that birthing people in D.C. can find someone who looks like them or who has had a life experience like them who can provide them with support. And we know that that also allows for a better trust as well, you know, and understanding a mutual relationship between the two. And your staff is really reflective. You know, your staff is comprised of a majority of Black women and people of color. How do you think that impacts the work that you do? So the work that we do is definitely impacted by having the ability to have clients who are working with people who have been in the place that they were, I think it's really telling that we have several people on our staff right now who were clients of ours. And so our staff is literally reflective of the people that we are serving and vice versa. And that's by by design. It's intentional because we know that the work that we're doing is relationship-based first. If we can build relationship, trust, and rapport, then we can support you through anything. It's more than me giving you a resource or giving you information. It's about me understanding your journey, where you're coming from, and taking your individual culture and using that to guide the way that I'm going to support you. So that has really been a value that Mama Toto has been able to give to its clients. And that is why the clients ultimately come back and say, hey, I want to train with you all. I want to be to others what you were to me. And I think that's one of the biggest successes that I can see at Mama Toto. That's always great when you, like you said, have people who have been in those same shoes and can go back and really relate to the clients they serve. Want to kind of touch on the inclusivity of Mama Toto. There's really inclusive language on your website and refreshing to see surrounding gender. Can you speak a little bit about your philosophy regarding equity and inclusivity? 
Absolutely. So equity and inclusivity are two of our stated values. And we're very intentional about ensuring that we are including everyone from the, the place that they present. So when we're training our workers, when we're, when people are integrating into our space, we're really intentional about saying each individual culture is what we are taking people as. For example, I, as a Black woman, cannot purport to understand another Black woman who maybe grew up in similar ways because each of our experiences was very different. And so when we are talking to other people, birthing people, Black people, people of color in the district and within our community and within Mama Toto, we take each individual on an individual basis. Um, and that's our way of creating a space for inclusion and equity, because if we're not presuming anything about anyone, then we can meet them where they are and we can be sure that they feel comfortable to come as they are. That's awesome. Final question for you. Um, what are some initiatives that you're excited about this year and how can people learn more and get involved and support Mama Toto Village? All right. So this year we are really promoting our capital campaign. We have a goal of $2 million for our capital campaign and we are about $500,000 from our goal. So we're really promoting that this year. People can definitely support us by visiting the movement is forever. There's no www, just the movement is forever.com. We would be grateful for any support that the community at large would like to give us as we move toward that final goal. Well, thank you. You heard it here. Thank you, Brianna Green and Mama Toto Village for the work that you're doing in the community and the services they're providing DC area families, mothers, and birthing people. Many thanks to Brianna for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Check out the show notes to learn more about Mama Toto Village and NICU projects dedicated to improving perinatal health quality for all mothers and birthing people nationwide. Last month, NICU launched the Equity Exchange Innovation in Reproductive Care and Child Health, a virtual event series hosted by our Department of Health Equity Innovation that's dedicated to exchanging innovative ideas, learning and discussing emerging theories, and sharing resources and tools on topics related to equity in maternal and child health. Keep listening for a highlight from our first exchange focused on the state of diversity, equity, and inclusion in 2024. I am Dr. Stacy Scott, and each iteration of our equity exchange, we look forward to exploring content that takes us further into the work of improving maternal and child health. We also want to make sure that we have a space that is open and honest for conversation, collaboration, and innovation. So with that, I'm going to introduce two of my colleagues. First, Avery Marginot, who is actually a certified doula. She serves as an equity consultant with Global Infant Safe Sleep Center. She's an operation manager, um, sexual reaper at City Block, where she's employed currently. She's a public health practitioner Avery approaches her work with a racial and reproductive justice lens to build more equitable systems for children and families. She has experience working with diverse stakeholders on programs spanning sexual and reproductive health, early childhood systems, building and expanding access to doula care. Our second person today, dear colleague, is Michelle Edison. She is director of Network Development at Pathways Community Hub Institute. Michelle is an accomplished and award-winning Director of Health Equity with 20 years plus of experience driving innovative public health equity initiatives 
Michelle champions a collaborative leadership approach to building high-performing teams and engaging community partners, agencies, lawmakers, and stakeholders to envision and employ equitable change. She is nationally recognized as a voice for public health equity, racial health disparities, infant mortality, and children's health policy. So with that, I am going to begin with Avery, and I'm going to pose a question to both Avery and Michelle. And I'd like to start out with reflecting on the state of DEI now in 2024, what can individuals do to help make systems level equity improvement changes within their organization? Avery? Thanks, Stacey, so much for your question. I think as we're really reflecting on where we're at today, we're seeing pretty, I think, distressing responses in many states to the national momentum that has been garnered around movements like Black Lives Matter, reproductive justice movements, trans rights movements. And that backlash that's happening is, I think, something that we see and we've learned a lot over the past couple of years around like white fragility responses, um, where we're really seeing a deep discomfort particularly from white people in our nation that are um, confronting the harm that their own privilege and power is having within different systems and, and withdrawing from that. So I think a lot right now about what individuals can, can do. It can feel really overwhelming. I recently had finished reading Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be Anti-Racist, which is a great read. But what really resonated me was that this is ongoing work. This is not a checkbox that we can just simply say, oh, I've read a book and now I'm the expert of this. To think about our responsibility as individuals to really examine ourselves. And that includes our own trauma. That includes our own experiences, whether it's in the workplace or in our neighborhoods and in communities, and how all of that intersects with our power and privilege. I think by really understanding those stories, we can be more sensitive to what are those feelings that start to arise wherever we are, whether that's guilt or anger or frustration? And how does that challenge our own self-view of self? Another really powerful tool is just humility and leaning into the fact that we will make mistakes, that these are really kind of challenging conversations that we're having across the country right now. Even though we won't always get it right, there is an accountability factor of stepping back and understanding when we have caused harm. And when we do cause harm, what can we do to correct our mistakes, to have those crucial conversations, to acknowledge the impact on others, and to really be responsible to doing that work within ourselves offline, rather than kind of putting that emotional effort on, on the person that we've just impacted. So taking away from here, individuals really need to be more sensitive to both their internal self and to the experiences of others. And I think that's really what will drive some important conversations around all of this. Thank you. Michelle, would you like to respond to that as well? Absolutely. And thank you again for having me. Uh, I love talking about the state of DEI because it is so critical to the work that I do in public health. And from my viewpoint, being having worked in different sort of uh, arenas in public health, being at a public health department, working for a nonprofit, what I found is that for individuals, it's so important to, number one, start within your sort of sphere of influence, right? You will not change the world in a day. And we've seen some of the challenges that DE leaders and professionals have faced over the past few months and years since the post-pandemic era has occurred. So I would say 
what can you do within the parameters and scope of your work that you can implement right now to, to sort of take that stand where you can have influence, but also understand your environment and how to maneuver through that. I think it's also important, too, to have allies. Avery talked about sort of understanding where you are emotionally and mentally and stepping into that. But I think for me, as a person who was that DEI person or health equity, they have different names, but are sort of the same thing. It was so important to have support, whether it's internal or external colleagues, because this is definitely heavy work. And what I've have seen and experienced is that sometimes the weight of this work is placed on one person or a few in an organization. And when we're talking about systems level changes that will not occur based on the efforts of one individual, especially dependent upon that individual's level of influence and power within that organization. Thank you. So my second question I'd like to present, I'll go back to Avery, is that now that we've looked at it from an individual standpoint, what are some key things that organizations can do when really trying to identify where they fall on this whole systems, equity systems continuum? And what are some tips that you might be able to provide to organizations who are really working to improve their um, equity, engagement, their work, both internally and externally? What comes to mind first is really just the ability to, with an individual, taking account and stock of where you are at, doing that work as an organization. So thinking about where are you currently, and, and the best way to get a pulse on that is really to talk to your people. Sometimes we make a lot of assumptions at an organizational level of what are the root causes, what are the problems. But until we actually have the focus groups, do the interviews, do the pulse surveys, if there's an evaluation that goes out once a year, um, making sure that the questions on that evaluation really pull out and solicit, how are we actually feeling as a culture? What is it like to work here? Is there psychological safety? Do you feel that there is true inclusion in team meetings or are you simply in a room. Once you've collected that feedback and data, it's really important to share back the learnings quickly. There's a tendency to really sit with it, wonder about the best solutions, wonder about what an organization can do to um, move forward with that data. Being transparent as soon as possible both helps to demonstrate the commitment to transparency of we collected this, we heard this, we might not know the full solution yet, but we're committed to try to address it. And additionally, anyone who may have been feeling really isolated in a response might see that there's actually a cultural kind of issue that other people are speaking up about. And that can really empower more people to stand up and say, I want to be part of the solution. I want to think with you on how to drive change here. I think collecting data, using it, being transparent about it. And then once you've collected data, really being accountable to doing something. So whether this is through work groups that people are invited to participate in from all levels, really getting everyone on every role that's adding to that solution is important, not necessarily just people in positions of power or, or decision-making authority, but starting to really shift that decision-making and drive to get at those solutions is helpful. So Michelle, what is your take on that? And when we work with organizations, what do you think of some things that they can do or some tips that based on your observation might help? To add to what Avery shared, I do think that it's important for organizations to acknowledge 
the harm that they have done in areas and whether it was intentional or not. And we know that when you're working in public spaces, when you're working to support people, when we see the continuation of disparities and health inequities, we know that harm has been done. And it's not to to be placed on those that are impacted by those inequities or disparities. So I think when we talk about transparency and communication, really being open about understanding the harm or the barriers that organizations have created for those that they were called to serve and communicating that, not just within a report or an internal group, but communicating that to your stakeholders, your shareholders, to those that you serve, and really being open to hearing sort of that feedback from those different constituents to collectively come up with solutions on how to address this. Watch the Equity Exchange, the state of DEI, on demand now. Click the link in the show notes to register for HDU's Equity Engagement Hub to receive notifications about future equity events. Do you know a student who's looking for a summer internship? Applications for summer 2024 internships at NICHQ are now open on Handshake. The National Institute for Children's Health Quality offers internship opportunities for undergraduate and graduate students who would like to learn about public health work in federal, state, and community settings. NICHQ interns gain insight into public health programs while focusing on specific projects in applied research and evaluation, communications and digital strategy, or programs, and complete their own quality improvement project. It's a minimum nine-week commitment with up to a $2,000 stipend. Applications close soon, so check out the show notes and learn more to apply. Stay with us as we close out the show with a piece called Why I Work in MCH, where members of the NICHQ team explore what drew them to and what keeps them working in maternal and child health. Today, we're joined by Beverly Reyes, a project coordinator at NICHQ, who shares her deep passion for equity in healthcare that stems from her family background and cultural experiences. A big part of my background is being a child of Guatemalan immigrant parents, uh, as well as having a family of mixed status. And I've had the chance to work with unaccompanied minors, um, which have all been experiences that have really allowed me to see the challenges and barriers to healthcare firsthand. This would include like language barriers or not having the privilege to take PTO to schedule a doctor's appointment. And in most states, also being ineligible for health coverage due to immigration status, regardless of age, economic barriers, um, seeing all of these things and these struggles that um, people close to me or in my life go through. Often they're told to go to a community health clinic or something. Federally qualified health centers are very much needed and have great intentions, but I do think that they have their challenges, um, especially when they're receiving a lot of patients and staff are probably not having the resources needed to support patients. I think with these challenges, you need to ask how much can you really help and tend to the people who need the services. For me, Providing truly accessible and quality healthcare for anyone, but especially marginalized people, has been something that I really care about. Thank you for sharing the passion and commitment to better health outcomes for all mothers and birthing people, their children, and their families. And for joining us on this edition of Before Birth and Beyond. Listen to our past episodes and subscribe at nichq.org forward slash podcast.